Previously on the Enneagram Journey. Why is it the words we write for ourselves are always so much better than the words we write for others? Move. Go ahead. Go ahead and what? Write. What are you doing? I'm writing. Like you'll be when you start punching those keys. Is there a problem? No, I'm just thinking. No. <laughs> no thinking. That comes later. Pat, what, what? What is wrong with you? Why do you want to be like this? What are you talking well, about? We were having this... We're having the same dream. What are you talking uh, why about? Why do you want to live like this? You're drifting through this life with no awareness of how special this is. You want to talk about what's happening right now, right here? What's happening right now is that I'm getting lectured by my pothead brother who lives in our mom's basement at 30 years old about how I don't understand the universe. Hey, here's, here's some understanding for you. A job and a car and a, and, and a, a wife and an apartment. I gotta go. What? I have to go, Pat. Where are you going? You know what? You wouldn't, you would laugh at me again. Like, and I'm not exaggerating. I think about it every day that there's probably somebody out there in the world that I've hurt their feelings and I didn't know it. And so it just drives me crazy. So I have to try to develop like this positivity in my brain because I'm just like, hopefully they'll reach out and tell me what I did wrong. And so I can apologize. But if they don't, I'll just try to find the joy in it and try to think of good memories and Maybe they'll like me. <laughs> seven. So seven. We should just record her. I know. We should just stand her up and record her. Oh, it's, we are it's, doing it's that very thing right now. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Annie Graham Journey podcast with Suzanne Stabile, the woman behind the road back to you, the path between us, and the journey toward wholeness, and the Annie Graham Journey podcast and curriculum. My name is Joel, and today's guest is Annie Graham 7, Shauna Nequist. We have had a couple of questions about the intro of the podcast the past few months. A seven guest is the perfect time to explain, I'm not the teacher, but give a little bit of seven understanding to the situation. It is hard for me as a seven to do the same thing day in, day out, week in, week out, year in and year out. And so I thought of this way, inspired by a show on my favorite radio station, to put some wind in my sails for my time editing the podcast. If you have a seven coworker, especially if you have a seven child or friend, I bet you know exactly what I'm talking about. Each episode, there will be three clips at the beginning. One from a previous Anagram Journey guest who shares the same Anagram number as the guest of that episode. And two clips that allude to a topic or subject in the episode. Today's, for example, includes a clip from the movie, Jeff Who Lives at Home. Shauna is talking about her husband, who's a four, and what she was saying, I was like, have you seen the movie Jeff Who Lives at Home? We talk about it. Blah, 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 blah. Bam, there's a clip for it. The other clip is from the movie Finding Forrester. They are going to talk about journaling, just like hearing about having a therapist and a spiritual director. You've heard them talk about journaling before. It reached me in this level. Shauna as a seven, I was like, you know what? That is really, really good wisdom. So, Finding Forrester clip about writing. And then the third clip is friend of the show, the great Jamie Grace, Annie Graham 7. There it is. It's not a riddle. It's not a puzzle. 
just a little bit more production value and good times for your boy while he edits his mother while she interviews incredible individuals. Plug time. Where will we go from here is just about a month away. Topics. Where have we been and where are we now? 13 biases and decision making and Enneagram teaching on discernment. We're going to be talking about deconstruction and reconstruction. What all does that mean? That's such a buzzword now, deconstruction. And then the wise words of the Reverend Joseph Stabile is going to give you the confidence to believe in yourself, trust yourself, believe in God, and trust in your concept of God. Reverend Joseph Stabile, Suzanne Stabile, and the Brian D. McLaren. It's going to be March 31st to April 2nd. Join us in Dallas or join online. You can get more information and registration at lifeinthetrinityministry.com slash where will we go. And I'll see you there too. And we'll have a good time. And you can roast me about the intros of the podcast. Only face-to-face though. Now it is time for Shauna and Suzanne. What a privilege and a joy it is to be talking today with Shauna Nequist. I honestly, it's been a long time since we chatted and somehow we've never end up, ended up in the same part of the world at the same time, which I would really like. So um, I'm gonna, when I'm north, I'm going to let you know. And if you're south, you let me know. I would love that. Me too. I think we could do a long afternoon and talk about many things. I agree. Um, I love your books. I um, love that you keep writing in hard times. I would like in part today to talk about um, what it was like for you to write during the pandemic. We both did that. And it was really hard for me. So I I love for us to explore that. But the first thing I, I want us to kind of begin to work with is that You've been married to Aaron for 20 years, which is a long time. That's a long time with some tools that you both have to get to know one another. And you have Mac and Henry. So first of all, I love the names and um, nine and 14 are very interesting ages in terms of parenting. So I'd like to talk to, to you about you and Aaron. I'd like to talk to you about you and the boys And then I'd like for us to talk about kind of uh, where you're headed professionally. I can't wait till the end of the podcast to say that I am so excited about the title for your new book, because I guess I haven't learned that yet. I'm guessing your book is, I don't know, 567 pages or something. (laughs) Hundreds of thousands of words went into this. (laughs) I'll bet. Because mine would. So we'll end up there. But there's so much that we all haven't learned yet. And I think we tend to lean into what we have learned instead of the questions about what we haven't learned. Just to be clear for the listener, that is the title of the book. Oh yeah. <laughs> I guess, Sorry. No, I, when you were talking, I knew that, but then I wasn't ready where you're going. And so you're like, I guess I haven't learned that yet. I was like, well, share the title then. If you, if you have, we so. did. We, this is the second time this has happened. A friend of ours um, texted my husband and said, Hey, Aaron, what's the name of Shauna's new book? And Aaron replied, I guess I haven't learned that yet. And he was like, Oh, she like really plays it close. I guess like even her <laughs> husband and he's like, no, 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 no. That's the actual title. So yeah. I think we're going to be doing a lot of that in the next year. Or so it's a good yeah, bit. That's the title. Yeah. 
I just think it's exceptionally, it's so exciting. I can't wait to say it when it would appropriately be in the podcast. So I've said it now. Now let's go back to uh, you and Aaron and the Enneagram and how it um, helps you. Yeah. I mean, I would say the Enneagram has been one of a very short handful, small handful of tools that has unlocked so much helpful learning in our marriage. I'm a seven with a six wing and Aaron's a four who experiences kind of both wings in different seasons. And, but a seven and a four are really different. And quite often, one of the things we'll say is like the exact choice, right choice for me in a moment would be the exact wrong choice for him. And I think we spent the first several years of our marriage appreciating each other, but also like trying to prescribe what would be our own healthy choices onto one another. And the Enneagram gave us such a beautiful and helpful language for how health looks really different for our different personalities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that whether or not you are in health or in stress would be my language would be security or stress, whether or not you're there determines difference as well. It's not like those moves on the Enneagram make you more alike, right? It doesn't happen. And one of the most astonishing moves on the Enneagram to me is seven to five. It's astonishing and easy to misread. Yes. I think. And also the only way I'm ever able to finish a book. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I have to find that super focused kind of narrowing way. Um, And I think it's, it's going to that five place that lets me finish any big project. Okay. So let's talk about uh, you and Aaron and the boys and the book, Mm -hmm. because I know it gets to be the same as another person, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, yes, there's Joe. And then I have the children and I have the book. (laughs) You've been triangulating with the book. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's what's happening. <laughs> Someone's jealous of the book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Again today, you're going to work on it again today, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So how do you support one another in your endeavors? You supporting Aaron as a four and him supporting you as a seven because you know the Enneagram. Yeah. One of the biggest uh, differences for us is the extent to which Aaron really desires in his work and in his life, um, depth, deep connection, deep meaning. Um, I keep using the word deep. There's an intensity and a desire for meaning. And it's very much from the inside out. He is so, um, one of the things I admire most about him is he makes things out of nothing. He sees things before they exist. He, he has such a a strong sense of who he is and what he thinks and feels about the world and things that would look fun or exciting or successful to someone else might be just of no value to him. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I, when I'm at my best, when I'm the best possible partner to him, I think my best moments are when I can say, tell me what's meaningful to you about this, or let's look back at the day and what felt valuable um, to you. Um, Because it it surprises me a lot of the time because they're not the things that I would choose or that a three would choose. It's a very personal kind of self 
directed way of looking at the world. The other thing is probably the thing I get wrong most and I'm learning the most about is how to be a good listener. Um, as a seven, I like things to move pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, it always sounds horrible to say this, but I'm like not a quality time person. It takes me like 90 seconds to feel really connected with someone. And then I'm just like happy to move on to the next thing. And I remember early in our marriage, Aaron would say, we would sit down and we would talk. We would talk for what felt to me like a very long time. And it felt like we had really plumbed the depths of just everything there was to talk about. And then he would say, oh, I can't wait till we really get some kind time to connect. And I think, oh, I don't, I I don't (laughs) get any more connected than this. This was my all connected. Mm -hmm. And, but one of the best gifts I can give him as a partner is learning to be better and better at listening and connecting. Cause that's such an important thing for him to feel heard and to feel like someone understands Mm. his thoughts, as opposed to assuming that he's just like everyone else, because often his perspective is really different than other people. So the, the best things I can do are, tr- are make space to listen to him and to honor what's meaningful to him as opposed to what's meaningful to me or to other people around us. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the movie Jeff Who Lives at Home? No. It's, Should I? I, th- I saw it recently. And I've been writing it down. It is uh, Jason Siegel is the main character and it's also with uh, Ed Helms and Susan Sarandon and... I think he's the most four character of all time. All what you were describing is hundred percent Jason Siegel's character. Yeah. What it, it's him. And then there's an, ad, an additional little aspect to it. It opens with his mother, students rain and asking him to do this mundane chore of gluing, a going to home Depot, get some wood glue, glue this thing. And then he has this four caricature of a day. And then uh-huh. at the very end, the final scene is him doing the wood glue. Yes, I okay, definitely I, recommend checking it out. I wrote it down. We are, um, both my kids are basically just, all they want to do is watch movies in the world. Talk about movies, rate movies, make lists of movies. So they'll be happy to have a, a good new movie recommendation. Awesome. We certainly uh, went through a transition, Joe and I, with our children and movies because they started quoting lines from movies to one another, which we didn't know were lines from movies. Mm-hmm. So we were, we always felt like we weren't quite in the conversation. We didn't quite know why we weren't in the conversation because they were movie lines. And now our son-in-laws and Joel still do it very frequently. And I don't try anymore to be in the conversation. I just let it be. Well, we were just talking about birthdays. My little guy just turned 10 and he wanted a Hollywood themed party. And so everyone had to come as a different, you could be an actor or a character from a movie. Um, And then we played all these games where you had to kind of act out um, or guess all these different movie related clues. And then we watched some movies and it was so fun. And the kids got all the way into it. um, And we were just shocked at their movie knowledge. It was fun. Oh, that's, you know, children who don't even have a day in their lives with a mother who's a seven have missed a lot. (laughs) That's what I was going to say. I be, that's for um, one of my kids. She she knows to take advantage of my sevenness or come her birthday. And she's like, I want to do something with my friends. And, but she's like, what do you think? Like, she wants me to come up with the ideas. Uh, and it always turns out pretty great. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm, Joel, I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm a public apology that your mother's a two and birthdays are just about feelings, not about fun. <laughs> okay. Oh, a mother who's a two. I have a mother-in-law who's a two and she is just like a, like a hug all the time. She's wonderful. So a lot of mother, a lot yeah. of mothering. Yep. Mother-in-law who's a two story. Whitney, when I met her mom, uh, her mom is a six and it was a very, it, it was standoffish, if you will. It was not sure. a lot of emotions there. And then she laughed because then she met my mom and Suzanne came up and gave her a huge hug. First time she's ever met her. It told her how she felt like she's known her her whole life, <laughs> whatever else. Yes. We're all so very different, aren't we? We're all <laughs> so very different. Okay. The question that I want to ask next is, what does Aaron give to you that you need besides depth and going inside? Like, how does he give you space? How does he honor your sevenness? Well, this is just such a, like a, a silly practical one, but um, when we were first married, but it's really, really helped us because in addition to being obviously different types, we are a pretty extreme um, introvert, extrovert. Um, he's pr- quite introverted and I'm quite extroverted. And we really had like, we didn't really even have a vocabulary for that when we first got married. But one thing we, we learned, and of course, like in everything in marriage, we learned it the hard way. So we first got married and about every other day, I would say, let's have people over. And he was like, oh, okay. And we would. And then at a certain point he was like, um, when are we going to stop doing this and just like be home, just us. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't want to do that. And so we, and he was like, but I want to be just like, I want to go to bed early. I just want to like decompress. And so we made a rule. I can have people over whenever I want and he can leave the party and go to bed whenever he wants. And I mean, people who know us well, will say he will get up in the middle of dinner. Sometimes if I started dinner too late or we had, you know, too many hors d'oeuvres or whatever, he will just like graciously stand up, wave and adjourn. Um, and that's just a, a small, he's like, I would hate for you to have to stop the party because I'm ready for bed, but I cannot sit here any longer. And so we've had to really just work that out. And I mean, we even joke about it. Um, I have a couple good friends who are my plus one for events that Aaron's like, oh, just don't even make me go to that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff that sounds really fun to me that I like to go to. And I like to stay out later. And so I, like, I just had a real a work trip to me that sounded really fun. And I brought one of my best girlfriends because Aaron was like, hard pass. I want to stay home. So I think, but he pushes me out the door. He sees how life-giving that is for me. He sees how much joy and energy I get from a great restaurant or a great concert or a great museum experience. And even though he needs a little more downtime, he never, uh, he doesn't want to stand in the way of me experiencing that. We went to a wedding recently um, and it was one of my very good friends and I could tell he was fading a little bit. He's good to dance for like three songs. And I was like, Hey, uh, I am here till the bitter end. I have taken my <laughs> heels off. I live here now on this dance floor. Um, then he was like, great. I'm going to get a car home with our friends and I'm going to send you home with the late night crew. And it was perfect. I stayed with all my girlfriends. And so I think it, it's letting each other live at our own rhythms. Mm-hmm. and um, seeing that what would bring joy and life and restoration for one of us is not always the same for the other of us. And he does that really well with me. That's astonishing that you all have been able to work that out. I think there are a lot of people who will um, find that 
the courage they need to try to do that, to honor their differences by hearing you talk about it. Hmm. I can't remember if it's in one of your previous books, if it's uh, from a podcast, but several years ago, I remember you doing some really lovely description of entertaining Hmm. and why it's important to you and how you do it and how you bring people to your table and how life-giving that is for you. And I, I didn't know that you and Aaron had worked out that he doesn't have to stay for all of dinner, (laughs) but I think that's, um, I wonder if to pull that off, a couple would need Enneagram wisdom, right? Like, how do you, how do you describe that kind of difference Mm -hmm. and make space for it? If you don't know the Enneagram, I don't know how anybody would do that. I mean, I think that it has been such an important tool for us, especially in working out kind of the, kind of that rhythm and pace and intensity thing, how much alone time he needs. But one thing I will say, I love, there are parts of like hosting and entertaining that I'm just crazy about. And I don't need him to participate. Like he doesn't care about the menu at all. He doesn't even like, just doesn't matter. Food appears and he'll eat it and it's fine. But he creates great conversation around the table because he loves meaningful connection. Mm-hmm. Um, he makes an amazing playlist. He mm-hmm. likes for our home to be full of interesting art and beautiful objects, you know? Mm-hmm. So there, there are things that we both bring to the experience, but I would say one of the best ones is the conversation side of it. He will kind of lovingly turn any group into a more meaningful mm-hmm conversation space where that's not always where my mind is. I'm like, uh, I think we need more bread or I think we need this, or I think mm-hmm. we need that. Um, and, and so I'm, we're a good team in that way. Yeah. We recently so, had an Enneagram for, uh, Anthony Williams on the podcast and this mm-hmm. wasn't on the podcast, but in the questionnaire to help us prepare for it, one of the questions, you know, anything you want to promote or he's like, no, uh, if you want to share my Spotify playlist, they're pretty great. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> that must be a fourth thing. If everybody was listening to this, the world would be a better place. Playlist. Mm-hmm. Twice in my life in the last few years, people I can't remember in what city have said to me that you are the only person they have ever encountered who is as extroverted as I am. Really? Yep. That's so interesting. It is interesting. Because like, I'm an extroverted extrovert. I'm Mm -hmm. all all out there. And you are. Mm -hmm. Um, So what would you think from your Enneagram experience is the difference in you being an extroverted seven and me being an extroverted two? Well, it's always intimidating answering a question like this for an expert, but I will take a stab at it. I think for me, in my experience with twos, twos are so profoundly um, driven by relationship and connection. Mm-hmm. Sevens need partners in crime, right? right. Um, I'm curious about people and I think they're entertaining and interesting. And I like them to be around because they make whatever I'm doing more fun. Mm-hmm. But um Twos have a purer relational energy and, and desire for connection, I think. And the sevens at their worst, I think, can sort of use people for entertainment the same way they would use like 
a great band or great food, or, you know, it's just one more thing that keeps things exciting. Um, and so I know one way that I can gauge my own health is my capacity for true connection or for just like, um, people who are along for the ride. Mm-hmm. When I'm healthier, I have the capacity to connect more deeply. And at my lower levels of health, um, I just sort of need like uh, someone to walk along with me as I go 15 places. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense because I'm learning that in healthy space for me, I need to be more like you Hmm. because I can't accommodate all of the relationships that are available to me. Mm-hmm. So we're both pastor's wives. So that that's its own thing in mm-hmm. terms of relationship. And um, I, I meet lots of folks who think we're friends because I know the Enneagram and I can't accommodate that anymore. So I'm having to learn that for me to take care of the people who are my people, mm-hmm. I have to be more like you and enjoy a meal with somebody or an afternoon with somebody without turning it into a relationship with expectation. Mm-hmm. Well, and I would say I've had to learn that the hard way, the, the sixness, the six wing makes me like, if we meet, we're on the same team for life. Right. And I feel yeah. responsible for you. And yeah. now I'm tending to your long-term needs. You know, yeah. um, my sister-in-law said something so fascinating to me. She was like, I see you with people all the time. And I hear you say, Hey, it's so great to see you. We should get together for dinner. And she said, I think what you mean is hi, right? Like that's it. You don't, there doesn't always have to be a next thing. Um, and I'm learning that the hard way. Um, and I'm better, but I'm better at it than I used to be. That's right. That's it's, it's a fascinating thing that we do those for different, that same thing for different reasons. Mm-hmm. I do it to feel wanted and needed and you do it for a completely different reason, but I don't want to put the words in your mouth. So you say why you do that in a sentence. Oh, I would say, um, I very, I words like responsibility, mm-hmm. loyalty. Mm-hmm. Once you're on my team, you're on my team forever. Um, I think, you know, as a pastor's daughter and then growing, working in churches, and there's this sense that uh, we are holding together a very large group of people that we are responsible for. And those are hard patterns to break. Um, It's been really freeing to live a different way in the last couple of years and say, hey, I'm not responsible for every single one of these Mm -hmm. people or relationships. I'm allowed to let things go. Mm -hmm. I'm allowed for things to be more mutual in relationship. That feels really good to me these days. I'm so thankful for what you just shared because that seven with a six wing understanding and wisdom that you just offered is really necessary Mm -hmm. for people to hear. And I would have never had those words because I'm not a seven with a six wing. Mm -hmm. It's real important for people to understand that this is one of the spots where it makes a difference what your wing is and how big it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Big difference. When Joel was much younger and first learning the Enneagram, one of his questions to me was, how can seven be right next to six? Mm -hmm. How how is that even possible? Because those numbers are so different. You got any wing talk to add, Joel? Just want to clarify, I was super deep in excess seven, probably around that time. So. I wouldn't have been you able had to... very little respect for any number other than your yeah, own. I, was say, I don't think I would have been able to see six if it was standing right in front of me. But <laughs> yeah, I get yeah. it now. And I especially one of the things that uh, clicked for me over the past few years, 
people would ask what my wing was. You know, I wasn't very curious about it. But as I started kind of exploring that, and I asked Suzanne one day if it's possible to have a specific uh, counterphobic six wing. Mm-hmm. When the answer to that was yes, that was really eye-opening to and en- enlightening on how that counterphobic six wing doubled down a lot of decisions I've made over the years. And that made a lot more sense than me having an eight wing. I don't, hopefully I'll start adding on that energy at some point, but. Mm-hmm. That totally makes sense to me. I think the, the energy of the counterphobic six and the energy of the seven feel much more complementary, mm-hmm. Whereas the energy of the six and of the seven feel a little at war with each other. And I feel that within myself sometimes, you know, there's a part of me that can be very cautious and anxious and orderly. For me, it comes out more in the loyalty side of things and in having trouble letting things go. Goodbyes, endings. I want everything to stay the same. Um, so I like variety in the sevenness, but ultimately I want a lot of security. And that that's another thing that the desire for security and stability really comes out strongly with me when I'm anxious. If I'm if my seven is standing on the ledge, my counterphobic six wing is standing next to it, and the seven's like should I, I'm gonna jump? Should I jump? The kind of folks is like you absolutely have to jump. You can't not exactly. Jump now. <laughs> and I'm like, I think you need a life jacket. Uh, yeah, little, a little more cautious. That was a fascinating conversation to listen to. <laughs> Shauna, what do you wish people knew about sevens that they don't know? Well, the first thing that comes to mind, I always say this: one of the Enneagram writers that I really love and learn a lot from. Um, refers to sevens quite often as the cheerful clown. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't really seem like a compliment to me. Um, I think there are people who think uh, that sevens, that they become sort of a caricature of just like a cross between a puppy and a clown and a bartender. You know what I mean? And that's brilliant. (laughs) And I certainly, I have moments like that. And obviously, part of it is like self-consciousness on my part, like, oh, busted. But some of it is also, um, I think we, we miss out on some of the deeper positive qualities of sevens, their resilience, um, their ability to make something feel special. Um, their what they bring to a group. I think those are positive qualities. I think we sometimes focus on just the kind of flighty escapist side mm-hmm. of things, mm-hmm. but, um, the sevens in my life add so much beauty. And I think this is the thing when you're around a healthy seven and you see how genuinely delighted they are by simple things in life. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty of a seven. Mm-hmm. Like it's not all like you know, champagne on rooftops. When I'm at my best, I become deeply overwhelmed by how happy I am to read a book in our yard. Mm-hmm. That's when I know I'm doing well. Um, I use the phrase easily delighted. That's a, like a, a, a marker for me. If I'm at my best, if I'm living in a healthful way, I'm very easily delighted. It doesn't take a thousand things a day. It doesn't take a million dollars. It doesn't take fireworks. It takes like a novel and a can of sparkling water and like the trees overhead. That's it. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, I, I don't love it when we're presented as only frantic. Certainly we can be, but there is a kind of childlike delight that I think is a really positive part of being a seven. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We had a couple friends who moved far away. We haven't seen them in years, but they, he 
was a Methodist pastor, as my husband Joe is. And um, he was a seven and his wife was a nine. And she used to say to him, uh, Mark, you need to dial it back three and a half, dial it back to three and a half. And I barely knew the Enneagram in those days. I, I didn't know it well enough to know how disrespectful that was. Mm-hmm. And I think perhaps her motives were because he was a pastor and she was being protective how does that affect you? Have you been told over your lifetime that you need to dial it back? And she would just say three and a half, three and a half. You know, I, I, when I hear that, I mean, frankly, I say, well, of course the nine wants you to dial it back, right? If we were all living at the pace of nines, come on, (laughs) you know, like that's just a mismatch of energy. Um, she wants things at a slower pace, like every nine I know, I would say I'm actually really grateful. The two or three most formative people in my life, my parents and my partner, my husband, um, I would say they love my sevenness and they don't want it to be any different than it is. Mm -hmm. And they, like, if anything, they, they really, they see it and they encourage it and, I'm really, really grateful for that. Mm-hmm. They, um, you know, my parents are so happy when we come to visit and they, they buy champagne and they, they, they do things that they know I love. And they, they say like, we just missed your spark and we missed your energy and we miss the life that you bring to every party and it feels like they see the best parts of me. And I'm really grateful for that. Erin says that, um, you know, a lot of times, like when you're gone, it's too quiet and, Or when you're stuck in a writing project, the house gets a little too, you know, a little too still, a little too dark. Like it's, it's great when that energy can come back out again. So I'm really grateful for that. Uh, That makes me happy that you've grown up in that safe container Mm -hmm. and continued to grow spiritually and psychologically in all the wonderful ways that you have. I'm anxious to read your new book, the title of which is, I guess I haven't learned that yet coming out in April. And one of the reasons I'm excited about it is because having read you, I'm expecting, well, let me just say this and then you can speak to it. It feels to me like I'm, I started out in waist high water and that as you grow, the water gets deeper mm-hmm. and deeper and deeper. And now I feel like I'm on my tippy toes waiting to hear about what you haven't learned yet. And I'm tipping my hat to your wisdom, I think, in writing a book about the things that you haven't learned yet, (laughs) instead of capitalizing on your life experience and what you have learned in some ways, you know, uh, a few minutes ago in the conversation, you said it, it, something about um, answering a question like that when you're talking to an expert, but I'm not an expert in sevenness Hmm. and everything I know about each number. I learned from being in the room with people who teach me who they are. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if coming out of the pandemic, 
we are going to be faced with what we discovered during that time that we haven't learned yet. And I wonder if we're going to have to reintroduce ourselves to people that we've known for a long time because of what we learned about ourselves in the quiet of the experience. I'd love to hear what you think about all of that that I just said, which I guess could take the rest of the day. But. Well, I, I, mean, I, I totally agree. I think this has been, um, I think one of the challenges as a writer is um, our job is to find words for the unspeakable sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it, there's a lot of pressure to narrate and label something right now. And I don't think we have any understanding yet of how deeply this pandemic experience has changed the world and changed our culture and changed our cities and changed our churches. Um, I think the essay I would have written about it two months in and 12 months in and 18 Mm -hmm. months in there, throw those in the garbage now, you know, Um, it's important to keep a record of things as they're happening. And there's a lot of value to um, articulating our experiences real time, but there is an enormity to this that we have are not even close to understanding what this Mm -hmm. has yielded in our kids' lives and experiences what it's done in marriages, what it's done in churches. Certainly so many of our friends who are pastors are um, very much in a fog of like what happens now. And so one of the tiny little gifts, and I say that, I think I mean it, um, about a billion things in my life fell apart a couple of years before the pandemic. And so then when it felt like the whole world fell apart, I was like, oh, wait a minute. I know some stuff about this. I know how to get up in the morning, even when the things you always trusted feel like they got pulled out from underneath you. Hmm. I know how to watch relationships fall apart and grieve their ending and keep going anyway. I know how to walk in prayer and silence and grief, even when you think you can't walk anymore. Hmm. I know how to just keep going with just like grit and because you have to, and not because you have any greater perspective on it. And so it all felt very familiar to me, Um, the loneliness of it, the confusion of it. I felt like, oh, I've kind of been here for a long time. Yikes. Mm -hmm. Now we're all here. Not that it's the same for everyone, not that anyone, you know, but uh, moving to New York for us, you know, I, w- we were, let's see, 42 when we moved. And, you know, when you're a writer, the weirdest thing happens, you start typing and all of a sudden people think you're an expert on things. I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm not an expert. I just like to type, right? right. Like I'm just good at grammar. Right. That's a different thing, but people ascribe to you this sense of wisdom, um, or kind of this expert status. And then we'd lived in our hometown for such a long time. We were like, you know, I could work for like the tourism board or something or like a welcoming committee. I lived in my hometown, which was Aaron's hometown, which had all my childhood friends, everybody. And then we moved to New York and I did not know how to do anything, nothing. I couldn't figure out the subway. We couldn't figure out laundry. We couldn't figure out the public school system was just like, what? And at first it felt really daunting. And then there was a moment where it started feeling really freeing. And I realized, what if I just get to learn everything all over again? What if I don't have to be an expert just because I'm like a mom? What if moms get to make mistakes and ask questions? What if I ask people for help on the subway and they're happy to help because they needed help once themselves? And it just opened up in me this sense of like, 
what if instead of feeling the losses of the last couple of years, which are very real, what if I also feel the lightness of carrying a lot less, of living more lightly, of getting to sort of erase and start over a lot of different parts of my life? What a gift. Mm-hmm. And so I just, curiosity became like the number one word in my life. What does it mean to practice curiosity and self-compassion? And then a little more curiosity and a little more self-compassion. Can you rebuild a life with those things when it feels like everything else fell apart? And that's what the book is about. That's what my life has been about. Um, Just asking a lot of questions and learning from people who know a lot more than I do and learning from traditions that have existed well beyond my own traditions and it has been so humbling and so exhilarating and it makes me feel young, not in like a, uh, like, I think I'm 20 way, mm-hmm. but like, like I'm a little more flexible in my spirit and soul than I thought I was. The cement isn't as wet or isn't, is still wet. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad, you know, that makes me really excited about the future. Does that make sense? Absolutely. How did you, um, manage or avoid or wrap your arms around the seven tendency toward reframing and and that experience that you've just named well i'd say a lot of it was in uh work with a really good therapist i have a therapist that i'm really grateful for and he's a two and he um holds space for me to stay in the grief and the sadness longer than i'm comfortable Mm-hmm. feels like he's that it's sort of some training wheels for me and I'm really grateful for it. Um, and then I would also say writing, um, writing is the antidote to some of the less grounded edges of my sevenness. It, um, uh, it, it, writing is where I feel the full breadth of my feelings where, um, I, I cry a lot when I write, mm-hmm. I, um, there are a lot of the things I'm trying to outrun in the rest of my life become present when I write. And so it feels like regardless of whatever you know, makes it into a published anything, the process of it is really important for me, really grounding for me. And that's, and then my, my relationship with Aaron, you know, when you live with a four, they're like, yeah. tell me some sad stuff. And you're like, yeah, well, okay. 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 I won't reframe it for you. Cause you like it really sad. Exactly. Right? So, uh, with the guided journal present over perfect, uh, your last book guided journal, mm-hmm. um, did you do that, offer that with the hope that writing, uh, let, let me uh, work on how to say this a little bit. I, I'm often asked what would be a good spiritual practice for different numbers. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I encourage most numbers to do, especially the numbers that don't want to, is journaling uh, for different reasons for mm-hmm. each number. It's so daunting for people who are not writers to look at a blank page and a guided journal is a opportunity for people to respond to somebody else's vulnerability. I would say you want to talk about that guided journal for a little bit and what you hope it will offer Mm -hmm. and how journaling, um, specifically works for you as a seven because most sevens don't love journaling. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I do love journaling. Um, 
but I think it's because it's a, um, writing words are just my, like my first, second, third, fourth language in the world. Like that, um, I, I experience the world primarily through words. And so more than any other thing, that's my most natural way of being. Um, and I always have been, I, you know, my mom's a writer and a poet and words have always been kind of my central thing, but I would also say, um, there's almost no wrong way to journal. And if it feels really daunting, um, set a five minute timer and grab a ratty piece of paper that you, you it doesn't have to be like the first page of a beautiful journal. Cause sometimes mm-hmm. that's what intimidates people. Um, so five minutes at a time and make it messy. My journals are just a disaster. There are grocery lists and menu ideas and places I want to go and people I should have texted back. And then also a few thoughts. I mean, it's just all in there. But so the reason we did this particular guided journal was because people uh, connected with the ideas in present over perfect. And their follow-up question was like, I, they, like, I like it, but how, how do I do this? Yeah. And so I tried to write a follow-up book and I just like, we couldn't get it to come together. And finally we had this aha moment. Like there is no one, how, of course there's not, what were we doing? The how is intensely personal. It depends on where you live and how old you are and what you want your life to look like and how many kids you have and what your most deeply held values and desires are. Like, there's no way I could write a how-to for anybody else's present over perfect journey. It has to be personal. It has to be self-guided. And so we said the best we can do is make sort of a map. If you follow, if you ask these questions, if you make space for these things, if you dwell on these ideas, that will sort of get you closer to your next place, not yep. whatever place I was. Yep. And so that's the point of it. And we kept throughout the, so once we got on that track, we were like, okay, we got it. And then we just kept pulling out content because we wanted it to be a genuinely, like every time you open it, we wanted you to exhale not be like, Oh, she's talking to me again. We wanted Mm -hmm. it to be like more and more blank space, more and more open-ended questions, just like a, a really calming process. You can open any page. You can go at any pace. There's no dates in it. That was intentional. It's Mm -hmm. not like you have to start on this date and end on this date. You get to take this journey yourself. That's the point of it. It's a a very seven expansive way of looking at the world. (laughs) I'm aware that as a two, I'm not a big picture thinker, hmm. which is a big problem. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a hard thing to learn. I don't think I've ever heard that. That's really interesting to me. Yeah, I'm a, I am so focused on uh, what's happening right now and the people who are involved. If I start to big picture think, then I start to try to accommodate everyone, which eliminates being able to have a big picture thought. So thankfully, Joel is a big picture thinker all the time. And um, I have said throughout the pandemic to this moment that I really think it was a time for sixes and nines to speak up for many reasons. Six is because they're concerned about the common good and nines because they see at least two sides to everything. And we've been so polarized. And now I think I'm moving toward believing that it's time 
for threes and sevens and eights to speak up because they think fast, you think fast, and you're big picture thinkers. And we're going to have to have big picture thinkers to lead us out of whatever this is that we can't seem to navigate. Yes. And y'all are navigators Mm -hmm. to get from point A to point B. I um, have been clear that I love the title of the new book. I guess I haven't learned that yet, but I want to talk about what you have learned. Hmm. What have you learned in the last two years that you think is expansive enough to be a gift for other people to think about? Well, um, you know, all of our lives are so different, but we experienced uh, the pandemic largely in an 825 square foot apartment. Oh my. (laughs) And so for a little bit of the time we were at a cottage in Michigan, but it was a, you know, wild 1000 square feet. So uh, we really like bumped up, live it up. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But both of those spaces, um, all of the buttons, I mean, you know, we, all those things we all feel, um, why is everyone in, in my house chewing so loud? When will I ever be alone again? Um, why can't we get toilet paper? Why, like just all of the, um, the close quarters and the homeness and the everybody together all the time, it felt so hard for a while. And then at a certain point, it started to feel very normal. And um, I think it speaks to our resilience and our creativity and our adaptability. And I think if we can, I mean, I keep joking, like, I don't want to have to test this theory, but I think the four of us at this point could live on the head of a pin. We, we, all of those things we thought we needed in terms of space, we don't all of those extra rooms we thought we needed all of the extra fun scheduling stuff and travel and trips. We don't, um, if there was one thing that I did during the pandemic, um, I was the gatherer of people in like kind of safe ways. Um, This spring, we couldn't gather in each other's homes. And so we gathered outside and we have this beautiful little courtyard and we started this happy hour tradition and it became our favorite thing. We've been doing it for six or eight months. And it was a way to be outside and be together and still be safe and not be you know, flaunt, you know, going against any of the the various important regulations, but especially as the springtime was coming, as the sun was coming out, we so desperately needed to be together. And so we started like super last minute, very messy sheet pan picnic blanket, happy hour. And when I look at, you know, kind of what got us through, that was one of those things that got us through just, you know, like pretzels, and a glass of wine and all the kids running circles around us. Um, I will, uh, at my best, that's what I do. I, I bring people together mm-hmm. and I make things feel a little more special and a little more unusual. Um, and I'm really, there are ways to do that in any setting. And I think it's really important right now. I think, um, you know, going into another winter feels hard to me mm-hmm. in New York, the temperatures are already, already started dropping. I think the resilience and the creativity that we found in those first months of the early pandemic, I think we need to look back on what we did 
And, and like, you've got the resilience and the creativity to keep doing that. We all can, we can keep making things special. We can keep connecting with one another. We can keep being creative and flexible and adaptable. I know sometimes it feels like we can't, like, I just give up. I live in my bed now. This is terrible, but we can, we've done it and we can keep doing it. That feels important to me. Mm -hmm. Three times now in discussing different things you've said, And at a certain point, everything changed. That's pretty astonishing awareness of the present moment for a number that's focus is tethered to the future. I know that you're not talking about a moment, but I do hear you talking about living to a point and then there was a different way to go or a different way of seeing. Can you talk about that? in terms of how you are aware enough to know, oh, wait, this is different than last week. I think uh, we very rarely realize in the moment when our lives are changing into before and after. Mm -hmm. I mean, the day we got a rental car and left New York and they canceled schools and we thought we were going to be gone for two weeks. We didn't know that day was going to be the day that everything changed. Mm -hmm. You know, by hindsight, Um, but I think that's why writing is important. That's why journaling is important. Mm -hmm. You keep a record of life as it's changing. And then you look back and you see, oh my gosh, that's the day the world changed. And I think it's, you know, it doesn't mean you understand the implications of it all. Um, I remember this is a different thing, but you know, it was just the 20th anniversary of nine 11 and it was very surreal to be living in New York on that day. Um, but I remember asking, um, one of the pastors at our church, the day that it happened, I remember saying to him, I'm too young. I was 25. I said, I'm too young to understand the scope of this. I don't, I don't have a category for this. And he said, nobody has a category yet, but it's bigger than you think times bigger than you think times bigger than you think. Okay. Um, but you just know by letting it unfold each day, but that's, that's why, um, as much as I would love sometimes to live in the future and to just be anticipating every next thing, keeping a record every day of life as I experience it is one of the things that allows me to live meaningfully in the present, as opposed to always fast forwarding. It's probably the most significant spiritual practice I can do as a seven. One of the, I was just telling a friend yesterday, one of the things I do also is I try to remember three sense-based moments from my day at the end of the day, every day a particular meal, a conversation, a moment with one of my children. How did the sky look? How did it smell? Was there music playing? What did their face look like? How was the light slanting in the window? And it helps my writing. Certainly it's a great practice for a writer, but it's also a great practice as a spiritual person. We live in this world and it's happening all around us. And if we don't pay attention, those moments just fly right past us. So it keeps me connected with my senses, with my body in the world as it's unfolding. And that feels like sacred work to me. Yeah. Boy, that's good. Uh, Along with every other thing you've said, that's really good. I um, am asking the same question at the end of podcasts these days, and um, we'll see what, what you've got that you haven't already shared. But the question is, what are you curious about? Well, this is just, this could start like a whole new set of conversations and I'm sure it does all the time. I think this is the last book of its kind that I will write because I really, really want to learn how to write fiction. I love novels. They're my favorite thing in the world. 
I love to read them. I, um, they're just like delicious and exciting to me. And if I could make one of those or several of those, um, that's always kind of been on my bucket list. And at a certain point you're like, I'm 45. When does a bucket list start now? Right. Um, so I am curious about fiction and I totally don't know how to do it. I'm probably going to like, I don't know, take a class or sure. I have no idea. Um, but it's something I really want to, I might be terrible, but I think I'm really going to enjoy the process of learning anyway. So that's yeah. what I'm curious about. I don't think it's going to be terrible. I think it's going to be an adventure, both for you to write it and for people to read it. I'm going to continue to hope that we're in the same spot at the same time, sometime soon. Absolutely. And until then, I'm so grateful for your time and for all of your work and for your resilience and your courage. I think you are an astonishing woman. Oh, my goodness. And it's a privilege to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It was a delight to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you, Shauna. Thank you. It was great to meet you.